Welcome friends and neighbors, good government listeners, political junkies, and people just checking us out. This is our newly renumbered podcast, The Battle for NC-14, previously The Battle for NC-11. But thanks to the newly enacted redistricting laws passed by the North Carolina General Assembly, changing all the district numbers, what used to be the 11th district is now the 14th congressional district. With North Carolina adding one new representative, the powers that be in Raleigh decided to make Western North Carolina the 14th and ostensibly in the new seat. Just for fun and a quick history lesson, Western North Carolina was originally designated as the Yadkin District beginning in 1789. Now it will be the 14th. Over the course of the intervening 232 years, the district has been assigned seven different numbers running from the 1st to the 14th. It's been the 11th since 1961. Consistency of numbering has not been a hallmark of the legislative redistricting process. But regardless of the number, it's still Madison Cawthorn's seat, and there are plenty of candidates who want it. In fact, we'll be talking on this show with two Republicans who've announced their intent to file against Cawthorn. And both have distinguished military service records as we dedicate this podcast to our veterans in honor of Veterans Day on November 11. I'm your host, Bob Orr, the old retired judge turned podcaster, bringing you all the latest on the political battle being fought across the mountains and valleys of Western North Carolina to see who and whether Madison Cawthorn can be defeated. Here's a quick campaign update. On the incumbent front, Congressman Cawthorn's Facebook page for events shows none scheduled. But it does show how his travels have taken him everywhere but his district. The three listed events in October are in Burke County, not in his district, Wilson County, on the opposite end of the state, and New Hampshire, which obviously isn't even remotely close to North Carolina. While one assumes he'll be in the district for some type of Veterans Day activity, I don't see it on his schedule. And a very recent tweet shows him headed to Texas in December for a conservative fundraising social. Cawthorn's Republican challengers, Colonel Rod Honeycutt, Wendy Navarez, and Bruce O'Connell, are, as best I can tell, still making the rounds, trying to stir up party opposition to re-electing Cawthorn. Which leads me to Joel Burgess's story in the Asheville Citizen on November 8th, which says Cawthorn's office declined to respond to an inquiry as to whether Cawthorn would in fact run for his seat in the new 14th district. The non-response immediately generated lots of rumors that Cawthorn might pull a Mark Meadows and unexpectedly not run at the last minute, throwing the GOP race into another multi-candidate primary with no incumbent. That's unlikely, but Cawthorn may have discovered that being a freshman congressman in the minority party requires a lot of work and a lot of constituent demands that he doesn't seem inclined to meet. All of this speculation has fueled additional rumors 
that current prominent GOP officials in the district are taking a new look at running, as well as at least one prominent Democrat thinking about jumping in. If you don't have a scorecard, you won't be able to keep up with all of this. On the Democratic side, the candidates are working on grassroots organizing, and at least one candidate, Jasmine Beach Ferrara, was knocking on doors this past weekend in Yancey and Mitchell counties, not exactly liberal-leaning areas of the district. And the Libertarian candidate, David Codney, had a launch rally in Asheville this past Saturday with the Libertarian State Party chairman and the Libertarian U.S. Senate candidate. So, no shortage of activities and things are heating up in the 14th district race, with a burner getting turned up ever higher as we move toward the filing period in early December. Now, let's get into our candidate interviews for this week as we honor our country's veterans. At the conclusion of our interviews with Colonel Rod Honeycutt and then Wendy Navarez, I'll do a short wrap-up segment focusing on veterans in Western North Carolina and include those candidates for the 14th who served our country but haven't yet been interviewed. So, here we go. Well, I'm delighted to welcome Colonel Rod Honeycutt to the battle for NC-14, both the podcast and the real battle, the race uh, to see who will be elected in November of 2022. Colonel, welcome. Oh, glad to be here. And thank you for uh, putting on this very important forum uh, for the voters of Western North Carolina uh, to understand who we are and where we come from. And I'm looking forward to a great conversation with you. Well, I am too. And Hopefully, the, the interest in this race w- will be even beyond the 11th district. I think there are people around the country looking at it, in part because of the incumbent. Uh, so, you're a Republican. Yes, sir. You, you've announced in the Republican primary. But tell us something about your background. All right. So, uh, born and raised right here in Buncombe County. Uh, family originated from down in Yancey County. Um Went to the same church uh, throughout my entire life and, you know, throughout my military career. We came home every summer. We came home at Christmas. So we've been able to keep ties with Western North right. Carolina, with family and friends. Uh, so this is home. and There's no better place than Western North Carolina. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. The, the mountains are special and Western North Carolina is particularly special. Uh, but you enlisted in the Army early on. Yes, sir. So uh, I was a uh, graduate of Clyde Irwin High School out in Leicester. I mean, you can't say Leicester. You got yeah. Leicester. You got to say it correctly. Yeah. Was Roy Williams the high school basketball coach when you were there? When no, had, Coach it? Connors and uh, Roy Williams was gone at that point, I yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, no, it was Coach Connors. Uh, yeah. Great man, though. Yeah. But no, uh, left here 1984 after meeting the prettiest girl in Buncombe County. Uh, met her at the Bilo's on Patton Avenue back in groceries. 37 <laughs> years later, we're still married, three sons. Um, but enlisted, needed that structure. Worked out at Steel Case in Arden. It was a great job for a young man, but went in at dark and came out at dark. And it wasn't for me. Uh, so I joined the Army. Looking for longer hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, not longer hours. Um, I need structure in my life at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ROTC at high school allowed me to join the Army as an E3 rank, so that had an advantage. 
So joined and went to Korea, first duty station, and came back to Fort Jackson, and Fort Jackson changed the trajectory of my life. So your MOS going, going? I was a supply sergeant. Supply sergeant, sergeant. okay. You don't make the supply sergeant or the cook mad, <laughs> or the finance guy, the pay clerk. Right. Um, but some ladies there at Fort Jackson took me under their wing, and they helped me to read and write at the next level and helped me get a associate's degree in criminal justice as a young NCO, young non-commissioned officer. Uh-huh. And this program came out uh, green to gold, which you got a scholarship. And we applied and got that scholarship with the University of South Carolina. And at the University of South Carolina, ended up being the top graduate uh, out of the ROTC program, which uh, designated me as a George C. Marshall cadet mm-hmm. and got to go to VMI and study about George C. Marshall and his life. And that was a pretty big deal for you know, a boy from Western North Carolina to get yeah. exposed to that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Went to Europe, uh, Cold War, know what the full gap is. Uh, I know went, what the full the gap went is. to the full the gap. Yeah, uh, been there on a tank. Uh, but during while we was there, President Reagan uh, changed our uh, lives with the wall coming down. We turned the tanks in, uh, and I had to turn my tank in. I had to go to the Bermerhaven and turn the tank in. So I got to watch foreign policy up front and close at that point. Didn't know what I was watching, but yeah. know that it was changing. Uh, finished there after three great years. Now, go to, now, did you did you go to Berlin and see the Berlin Wall? Did we you, have been yeah, to Berlin. Yeah, yeah uh, and yeah. saw the Berlin Wall, uh, Checkpoint Charlie. Yeah, yeah, I've been to Checkpoint Charlie. Yeah, the one point, the one time I was there, uh, I'll, I'll interject with this story here. Sure. We came down. You could see the the East German guards with their rifles and binoculars, and we walked down um, to the wall, and there in big blue letters. Carolina, go Tar Heels. <laughs> now, I know you're a Gamecock. I'm a Gamecock. But that was, pretty, that was pretty big for a Tar Heels. Yeah. So uh, we watch, um, we go to Fort Bragg after that and get to jump out of uh, airplane 101 times. Uh, enjoyed yeah. the uh, paratrooper way of life. And it is a very regimented way of life. Uh, you're on a two-hour recall to be ready to go around the world uh, to jump out of airplane 18 hours. Uh, Love that part of life. Something special about that maroon beret. <laughs> Uh, loved wearing it. Uh, great tour there. Uh, and then went to uh, get a master's degree at the University of Florida Institute of Technology and Logistics, supply chain management, right. which is a big thing in our politics right now in our country. Um, so got exposed to, at the next level there with their industrial military complex and moving stuff from factories to foxholes. Um, That's a pretty good slogan, factories to foxholes. It is. Yeah, and it's just yeah. true. And yeah. you got to have it there yeah. on time, on target. In a time of need. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you, you learn measures of effectiveness, measures of performance, velocity, throughput, uh, and how to work at each of these nodes. Uh, so it was, a, it was a good degree, uh, especially later on in my career. Uh, finished that degree um, and have every intention going back to Fort Bragg. Uncle Sam had other plans. Uh, sent me to Korea. And just like uh, we started shutting down Germany-wise there, I get to Korea and our foreign policy changes. And we start shutting down the Western Corridor in Korea. We're turning bases over to Korea, doing environmental checks, and turning it over the same way we found it. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do that, uh, I guess that was 2005 and six. Uh, finished Korea. think I'm going back to the 82nd. Uncle Sam had other plans. <laughs> ended up going to Hawaii uh, and ended up hanging out in Hawaii for almost 10 years with a couple of breaks. Afghanistan and got to go to... Jefferson City, Tennessee, is a professional military science. Uh, but uh, tours from there, 
first tour in Afghanistan was uh, 2009 and 10, uh, and that was a uh, during the uh, buildup. Right. Uh, President Obama on board. Uh, Commanded a battalion in Afghanistan with everything that you can think of from financial management services to truck drivers to mechanics to medics, uh, surgical teams. Uh, it was a very diverse unit that we're in charge of. We were straddling tactical operational strategic level uh, operations, tactically delivering supplies, operation, helping our NATO partners uh, with their uh, ability to get supplies and in working on standing up the Afghan National Bank, because as we were st standing up the Afghan National Police and the Afghan National Army, there was no pay system. So we had to designate our financial management team to go to Kabul uh, and start working with the banking system and reaching back to the U.S. to get advisors. Here's what law says in the U.S. And, you know, shadowing that, that was pretty significant. Uh, understanding that process at that level. Um, to finish that tour, I think my career is over. And said, hey, well, we got a consolation prize. We're going to send you to Jefferson City, Tennessee to be the professor of military science hmm. and get to go there for a year and uh, train young men and women. And it was a year, well, was right as we signed in, we came out on a battalion command list going back to Hawaii after a year. So it was good. And we got to go right back to Hawaii to the same unit we'd been in. Uh, and that unit was a striker unit. Right. We had just fielded strikers. And we were starting to do power projection platforms throughout the Pacific, going to Korea, going to Taiwan, going to Guam, and get exposed to how valuable, and when the U.S. goes to an exercise, it is the center of gravity. Everybody wants to participate. Countries are signing on because they respect us and want to be part of it. Uh, it was proud of that. Uh, do two years uh, in command, uh, make colonel, and I uh, had a year, and they said, what do we do with this colonel? So he put me on a four-star general staff uh, in the Pacific, and I got to see how we interact at a strategic level with a right. four-star general talking to the <laughs> leaders of different countries and what red lines you could talk about, what red lines you could not talk about. Uh, and that was uh, just impressive to see synchronization between Department of State messaging and how it goes through the military and how you synchronize that at the tip of the spear. Uh, that was, you know, it was pretty unique. From there to the War College, uh, work on a master's degree in strategic studies. And uh, why there? Get notified you're now on the brigade command list, which is a tough cut. Uh, right. But we made the cut. You remember that full gap we talked about? It was 100 right. miles long. We go back. And while I'm there, uh, my task is to open up pre-position platform sites along that now 2,800-mile border that used to be 100 miles. So if you imagine the Asheville Airport with uh, a longer runway and a couple of car lots and buildings around it, that's what I uh, was tasked to open up. Uh, so dealing with the ambassadors from the countries, learning environmental law, learning mm -hmm. hiring practices from those countries in there, that is uh, a daunting task. And so you get advisors of every type reaching back from the help from the U.S. as you're talking uh, legal experts, building experts, uh, just everything in that. Now, building is one thing, getting it funded is another. Uh, we got NATO dollars, and I got to interact with the House Armed Service Committee on why we needed to put our tax dollars to augment NATO dollars. And that was my first real interaction with the political aspect of it. And uh, it was, go ahead. I'm talking. Well, no, no, I, I, I was going to say so, but it was 32 years that 
You were in the military? 37. 37. 37. My apologies. No, sir. That's that's a long time. Uh, But you retired. And when you retired, was it your intention to get involved in politics? Or did that serendipitously happen? No, it was... um it was a deliberate thought process. Uh, I have followed uh, Western North Carolina politics. Uh, family had been in politics. Dad was a mayor of Woodfin, the youngest alderman ever in Woodfin. Uh, uncle was a town manager in Woodfin. Uh, cousin right now is on the board of aldermen. So we've had the political theme and service mm-hmm. to our country. But I started to sit down after 37 years, started to itch. Got to right. find something to do. Uh, so I go to work for my brother on the pest control company out on the north end of Buncombe County. And we're out talking to people, and they're saying, man, you need to, what are you going to do next? You know, there's all kinds of stuff. And I started thinking about where would I best fit in. Uh, and I reflected back on uh, being in Afghanistan during the drawdown and writing that drawdown plan in Afghanistan and really disagreeing with, what I was seeing unfold uh, with the political uh, here locally, I said, you know, I'm going to start talking to people. So we took about 45 days, traveled around. Mm-hmm. I said, what do you think? And it came back. It's worth the fight. It's worth stepping into it. So from July 1st to August 1st, right before we announced, we started developing a theme and a campaign site and continued to test the waters. Uh, we brought family in, uh, about 100 friends. Right. We said a prayer. Uh, we thought about it, uh, and we announced on one August, and it was uh, been life changing. Yeah. I've been drinking from a fire hose <laughs> since then. Yeah, it's a big district. Yeah, yes, sir, it is, yeah, and a diverse district. Um, so I, th- I think I've read that January sixth was also a defining moment for you. It was for our nation. Yeah, uh, for a lot of people, it, it was um, an attack on our democracy. It was an assault on our law enforcement agencies, our political apparatus, uh, and it's something that emotional for a lot of people to watch that on our TVs. Um, you know, and there should have, uh, it should have never happened. Uh, we should never, and peaceful protesting should happen all day long, sure. go peaceful protest. But the actions of that day, uh, that it was just uh, not what Americans are, not what I believe in. And, well, as I took that oath uh, to protect and defend our Constitution, I'm going to protect and defend our Constitution. And um, just unfortunate that uh, we had disenfranchised Americans believing that that was the way to fix it. So... Considering the fact that essentially it was a group of supporters of Donald Trump and the incumbent Republican, the new congressman, Madison Cawthorn, was at that rally. Have you found resistance within the party in Western North Carolina about your perspective on what happened on January 6th versus what you know, Trump and others have tried to spin it as? No, I've had 
you know, you hear everybody's views on it. Uh, and I've had no one challenge me on uh, my personal uh, beliefs in it. I'm more focused on the deeds of the day than the words of the day. And I think that our judges right now who are prosecuting uh, are focused on the same thing. Uh, I think we're almost 700 people prosecuted and they're charging with uh, destruction of government property, uh, interrupting proceedings, uh, assault on police officers. Uh, and I think that's the right thing uh, for them to be doing. Um, as long as the men in blue uh, in our judicial system uh, act accordingly, I don't think anybody can uh, say that it was the right, wrong thing to be doing that right now. Yeah. Right. So your experiences on the campaign trail, what, what's been the biggest surprise? What, what's, what shocked you the most? Getting a donation and having someone look you in the eye and having that weight and that burden now mm. that you got to perform for them. Uh, that caught me off guard a little bit. The enthusiasm has been incredible on both sides. And I don't want it's not just about Rod Honeycutt, but mm -hmm. it's people love our republic and they want to voice their opinions. I have been uh, challenged. I have had attaboys, and I've had the other ones. <laughs> I've had doors slammed in my face. Uh, but, you know, it's um, you got to be thick-skinned. You're not going to win them all, right. and I know that. Uh, but I am a uh, oldest son. I don't want to disappoint anybody. Right. So when you walk out of something and you say, man, we're just never going to meet eye to eye, uh, I've got one rule. When I meet someone, I tell them that rule up front, regardless of how their politics ends, our relationship lasts beyond it. We're going to shake hands and leave as friends. Uh, and I think that's what we got to get back to in our politics and having uh, not so much divisiveness, yep. uh, what we're witnessing. So in traveling around the district, what would you say are the two or three sort of primary issues that are on people's minds and also on yours? From um, our western counties, uh, it's definitely medical, uh, not having brick-and-mortar facilities, uh, rotational plan, and getting that into a predictable state. Uh, road networks, going to those western counties are single points of failure, where if you get trapped, you can't get through. Mm -hmm. So as we look at uh, getting here today, coming yeah. down 240, uh, coming out of Waynesville, coming this way on 40. Traffic is crazy. Uh, putting federal dollars towards that uh, to improve because as we get more, you know, we're growing. Waynesville's growing. Asheville's growing. Uh, putting dollars into infrastructure for our highways uh, is on my mind. Broadband is on everybody's mind. And to me, there's not a... Uh, turn it now solution there's got to be a temporary solution over a longer period where we get a uh, we get to a brick and mortar type solution uh, children not being able to go to school business not being able to operate on the same level as their competitors uh, getting that on board um, is on their mind 
voter uh, election integrity. Uh, you hear that a lot as you go in. And what are we doing uh, to correct that? And you know, great conversations with uh, election uh, team down in Madison last night, talking about election integrity uh, out in Transylvania County, uh, talking about uh, getting confidence back in our system uh, is on people's mind. Economy, uh, right now, gas prices, drug prices, right. Walmart prices. I'm not putting a plug in for Walmart in any shape for me, <laughs> but uh, that is what people are worried about. Empty shelves. We're seeing people not working and how to get uh, incentives, employers to bring people on board. Um, so, that, I mean, there's, that's more than two or three yeah. that you asked yeah. for, but it is, uh, there's a lot of stuff on people's mind. And listening to them, um, and it's been I mean, drinking from a fire hose and trying to think through, I mean, if you're in Washington, how do you navigate to show that you believe in Western North Carolina? And I think that that's where um, you take the Second Amendment. I want a Second Amendment advisor from Western North Carolina on my staff. I want to take somebody with me to West to Washington that reaches back here and knows uh, what it means to represent West North Carolina on a Second Amendment issue, uh, and I want to have a uh, open line of communication with not just Republican chairs but Democratic chairs right. on both sides to have the communication, um, and I think that's missing right now. Just um, a dialogue at leader level. Who's working on what and why are we working on it? As opposed to tweets and communication policies? Well, I'm not, um, I'm not a social media guy, yeah. uh, and I'm going to get beat up for it. Um, and it's, I use uh, social media to put out messages, but rarely do I entertain getting into a conversation about Rod Honeycutt or this campaign. Uh, to me, it's, uh, I want to see you face-to-face. Because uh, there's too many hidden agendas behind social media business. Uh, let's have a front door screen, back door screen versus a TV or computer screen conversation and lay the cards on the table. So how do you think you defeat a well-funded incumbent in a primary, particularly Mr. Cawthorn? Uh, you got on penny loafers or something like that. So I think the penny loafer net... <laughs> The boot net, the fire department net, the yeah. church net has more precision than the Internet. Uh, Monday night, I'll be in Hendersonville uh, talking to fire department. Throughout uh, the week, I'll be talking to churches, small groups. Um, to me, that's important. I'm not going to outraise Math and Cawthorn, but I don't care how much money he raises. He can't buy maturity, leadership, knowledge, and experience. And, and that's the difference uh, that I'm going to bring to Western North Carolina. And I want people, uh, when they go in to make a decision, when they look at Rod Honeycutt's name, I don't want them to blink. I want them to know that Rod Honeycutt is a man who loves Western North Carolina, who has experience, uh, 40 years of federal government, 40 years of a military, and wants to bring that discipline, self-discipline plus work ethic discipline, 
back here. Um, but we're going to continue to raise money, and we're going to do the best we can. I think we're about to break the $6,000 mark. <laughs> so, you know, that's not a lot of money, no. uh, but we've spent 400 and we have got a lot of traction on four hundred dollars. Yeah, fiscal conservative. Fiscal conservative. Yeah, we've yeah. got it, and we're going to keep going. Um, as you meet donors, as you meet, uh, I call them spheres of influence, in each of these counties who open up other doors. Uh, I'm looking them in the eye, and we're talking, and we're going to continue to move, and continue to shake hands. Um, we'll every social media. We'll get a TV commercial out there. We'll get a billboard yeah. or two out there. But uh, we're going to do it in a methodical method. Uh, we're not going to spend money uh, in an unwise way. That's probably a good way to end it. But I, I need to make sure that, that folks who listen know that uh, your website's cutforcongress.com. Cut being your nickname, right? C-U-T-T-F-O-R, congress.com. Telephone number, 828-275-6848. You call, we'll come. And is there a donate button on the website? There is a donate button on the website, um, and we are going to uh, graciously accept. We didn't accept donations really uh, first two months because of Haywood County, Uh, but we are now actively pursuing uh, donations. And... If you invest in Rod Honeycutt, uh, we're going to make a difference for Western North Carolina. And call us. Let's have a discussion on what matters. Well, we look forward to not only calling you, but seeing you uh, frequently and talking about the campaign as we move forward. Colonel Rod Honeycutt, candidate for Congress in the 11th District. Thanks so much for your time and good luck. Yes, sir. God bless you and God bless Western North Carolina. Amen. as welcome to the battle for NC-14, both programmatically and in reality. You're you're a candidate. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted. Um, well, I want this to be an introductory uh, interview so that people listening have a good idea of, of, of who you are and, and your background and experience. So tell us about yourself. All right. Well, uh, I grew up in Kings Mountain, North Carolina, so right down the mountain. It's the last mountain before there's no more mountains, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. which I did hike a lot, that one in Crowder's uh, yeah. when I was in high school. Um, and then a little bit after high school, I went to Gardner-Webb for a semester, realized it was quite hard to sustain uh, a roof over my head and pay for college and electric bills and gas. and right. you know. So I uh, joined the military. Joined the Navy, uh, September of 2001. See the world. Uh, see the world, they said. Yeah, yes. Yeah, and I did. Yeah, I yeah. saw a lot of the world. Um, and then I was there. I was in the Navy for 11 years. Well, tell us a little bit about that experience, because being a veteran is an important aspect of the campaign. Yeah. Well, for me, uh, you know, you go in and you think you know a lot, like every teenager. Right. Um <laughs> <laughs> and then you get a reality check. And I think um, the biggest thing I took out of it was the diversity of our country. Um, it's hard to realize that when you've only been in your small town right. 
Um, and the way that even as diverse as we were, how well we could work together to accomplish something. And then uh, those skills to, to manage all of those people. Um, And I made rank pretty fast um, and was able to uh, mentor and guide dozens of sailors along the way. And it was a wonderful experience. So it helped, it helped mold me. I believe it, it, it allowed me to learn a level of professionalism that most early 20 year olds do not get right in in your military occupation specialty was well the navy fooled me once (laughs) (laughs) i went in undesignated uh had a good asvab score but i think they were just looking for some uh females on board the ship that were in deck department yeah so i got to do some hard manual labor at first and uh so they say choose your rate choose your fate uh, so I struck into dispersing, uh, which is accounting. Right. So I handled um, tons of cash, uh, foreign currency, uh, balanced books every month and annually for, for the commands I was at. And eventually I moved on to payroll and, um, and doing a lot, a lot of other HR type human resource work. And where were your duty assignments over the course of your time? Oh, beautiful San Diego, California. Nice. Uh, that was my first duty station. Uh, so even though I was doing the hard work at first, at least I was in a, a pretty place. Um, and then I went on to Norfolk, Virginia. I was down in um, Atlanta for about a year at a naval air base, but was um, sent up to Norfolk for a special assignment. Uh, I took care of a group of uh, folks who were um, dealing with Hurricane Katrina uh, and then again, later on, they actually brought me in to, to help do the same process for travel entitlements and things, uh, getting people out of the uh, in Japan during the tsunami and things. So um, that was that was very rewarding work um, to be able to help fam- military families. And then I went on to uh, deploy. I deployed around South America, the Mediterranean. Um, what kind of ship were you on? I was on five different ships. Yeah, so I've yeah. been on the small boys that make you uh, walk sideways on the walls. <laughs> and then I've been on carriers where you don't even realize you're out to sea if you're inside and, and everything's going slow and steady. So, um, and then the ship I went to for a short period of time to fill a billet that was gapped uh, was over there in Italy, which was wonderful. Right. Um, the Mount Whitney. So I've been on the George Washington and the Ronald Reagan. And uh, my first ship sent at the bottom of the ocean, unfortunately. I know. Now, how did that happen? <laughs> well, it was an old Spruance destroyer from the 70s, and they decommissioned it and used it for target practice. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's becoming a, a coral reef and, you know, hopefully doing some kind of good. <laughs> yeah, attracting fish, right? So, yeah, yeah. Well, well, what a fascinating experience. Uh, I'll have to tell you, I've, I've been reading a, a trilogy about the Pacific War in yes. World War II, which I really don't think we've, as a general public, is ever we've ever fully appreciated what um, the men and women did in combat in the Pacific. Uh, most of the focus being on on the European theater. But mm-hmm. wow, what what the Navy and uh, uh, the Marines did in, in the Pacific oh, was yeah. just just an incredible definitely. Um, yeah. So all right, you you uh, get out of the Navy after. 
11 years. 11 years. Uh, went actually a few months later right back into the same position as a civilian. Mm. So I was doing a lot of the same work for uh, this one of the same command, shore commands as a, um, you know, public servant. Mm-hmm. Um and then decided I wanted to move home. Right. People thought I was crazy to give up a government job. But, you know, <laughs> you just know where you need to be. Right. And, um, and later on, that kind of was the same same thing that happened to me with this position I'm in now. Um, so, yeah, I did that. And then I, I found a job here in Western North Carolina as a controller and human resource supervisor at a manufacturing plant. And so I did that for two years. Yes. So. You decided to go to school, or uh, I did. Uh, I was uh, actually uh, going to school at the same time, yeah, uh-huh. but then I found out I was having twins. <laughs> so if anybody's ever tried to balance a budget at home and had a child going to daycare, think about two going to daycare, two being in diapers, right. you know, <laughs> two growing out of shoes too quick, you know. Yeah. Um, so it just wasn't um, the right thing for me to stay in the workforce because I would be working just to pay for for daycare. Right. So yeah. that wasn't a that wasn't a really logical thing to do. So I, I stayed home for two years with them. And I was lucky because my older two I had in the na- while I was in the, uh, the Navy prior to uh, them authorizing one year shore duty after having a baby. Yeah. Uh, I, I was back on board a ship within a few months. Um, so I didn't get, get that time. Right. So it was nice to be at home with them. Well, so tell us about your 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 greater family, uh, oh. kids, husband. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my family, uh, my dad was born in Murphy. My mom was born in Gastonia. Uh, I ended up in Kings Mountain because my dad was adopted. And right. during the 40s and 50s, uh, mills and things were a big deal down in Belmont area, sure. Gastonia. And so th- that's how he ended up, uh, his family ended up down that way. And then he met my mom and... I have uh, an older brother and sister and a younger sister. And then um, I had three, I have four children of my own. I have my son who's 18, just graduated. And I think his aspiration, he's a mechanic right now, but his yeah. aspirations are to join the Army here soon. Not the Navy? Not the Navy. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you can't tell kids anything. He'll sure. figure it out later and join the Navy after a tour in the <laughs> Army. But, um, and then uh, my daughter's 15, and she goes to Reynolds here in the area and uh, in 10th grade. And then my twins are six. They just turned six Wednesday. Wow. And uh, they are at Candler Elementary in the Spanish immersion. So they, they are immersed in Spanish all day long, <laughs> which is great. Well, that's wonderful. And, and they're all immersed in the campaign one way or the other, right? Yes, they are. Yeah. Yes, yeah. they are. So you got a graduate degree from Western Carolina. We talked recently with uh, Dr. Cooper, who I believe was one of your faculty members. Yes, he yeah. was one of my professors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so I got my undergraduate from UNC Asheville in political science. Mm-hmm. I actually went uh, up to the point where I knew I found out I was having twins. I was in a, the accounting program and was doing a minor in management. Uh, switched over because I realized, you know, I, I'm really good at numbers. Not my favorite thing to do to sit in a room and just crunch numbers all day, every sure. day. 
Yeah. So I switched over to political science. And so I got my political science degree from there. Um, and then uh, we flip flopped me and my husband. Mm-hmm. So he went and got his degree. And then uh, when he went back into the workforce, I came to Western here at the satellite um, facility and uh, was able to finish my master's with my GI Bill. So it was, it was good. It was a great experience. I love it. Yeah, I should say that we're actually doing this interview at the <laughs> Biltmore Park facility for Western Carolina University. We're, we're not in Cullowee in Jackson County. We're in Buncombe County um, uh, outside of Asheville. And it's a lovely facility and a, mm-hmm. and a great program here. It really is. They have a lot of, a lot of great master's programs here. It's really good for, uh, for working adults yeah, yeah. <laughs> to manage to get their degree or their advanced degree. So. So at some point, Wendy Navarez, uh, former Navy veteran, mother of four, decided to run for Congress. How did that come about? So I followed politics and um, I, you know, I didn't like what I was seeing. I didn't, I did you know, I, I've interviewed a lot of people as a human resource supervisor. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see the qualifications needed for the job uh in the in the candidates and in the people that I you know had a choice from um kind of silently told myself uh before November's election that I was I said you know this young kid with no experience is uh you know voted in the office I I think I might run and you know it was just a toying with the idea right. Um, actually had a few conversations with some elected officials and, and professors. Right. Um, because really my goal was to go into local government uh, as a city or county manager at some point. Uh, and that was kind of spurred on by our own local controversy with uh, with our prior county manager. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I when I see something wrong, I get educated and involve myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so really what's Bird and what was the catalyst for for me running was January 6th. Um, I had sworn an oath to protect, you know, defend the Constitution, our democracy in this country, and I just saw it uh, being attacked that day, and I just I couldn't stand by. I, it definitely, the the idea of of running became a a reality in that moment. Yeah. And was that in part because the incumbent congressman, Madison Cawthorn, had been a supporter of those uh, individuals gathered on January 6th? It is. It is. Um, You know, there are people in our party, including the former president and and, uh, the incumbent, who were there that day. And I, I think our leaders need to realize that their words mattered to people. And when they say things, um, even if it's not outright, how that message is received can cause things like January 6th. And so whether it was intended or uh, pre-planned or just spur of the moment um, chaos, it was wrong either way. Um, and we really need to find leadership that can uh, learn to address the public in, um, in a better way. You know, uh, that's not the way you engage in democracy. So, so this is your first campaign. Yes. And 
you're in the Republican primary or yes. filed to be in the Republican primary. And does your position on January 6th and what happened and, and those directly involved, including Madison Cawthorn, present problems for you in the context of the Republican constituency here in NC-11? I think it can at times. I, I believe that that is uh, all about messaging. Um, I found that campaigning is a, uh, similar to educating yeah. um, and sharing your viewpoint of something because sometimes that was not the same message that people got that day on January 6th or since. Um, so having, having those relationships, building those relationships and sharing, uh, my point of view has went far. Um, I, I'm not going to give up on my party. Um, I believe there are wonderful people in the party, um, that do stand up. Unfortunately, not as many as I would like, <laughs> yeah. uh, as we've seen here recently with some of the votes that are going on, uh, on the house floor right now. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see how things go from here on out. But. So, so generally what's your, what's your take on the experience of, of being a congressional candidate? Well, it's a lot of work, right. <laughs> a so, lot of driving. Big district, right? Yeah. It's a big district. Uh, I try to explain to people, you know, some people's district, uh, you look at the map and it's a dot, yeah. uh, but there's a lot of people in that dot. And ours, we have a lot of land and people spread out. So it's a, it's a lot of time in the car and um, the kiddos sometimes get drugged with me and sometimes <laughs> they don't. So, um, yeah, it's it's a lot of time spent, but uh, it'll be worth it in the long run. So you felt positive about about the campaign and your I efforts? have yeah. honestly. Um, most of my one on one or small group conversations have went extremely well. Um, I think that at the end of the day, the party, whether you're just a registered voter or you're uh, in a position of leadership. Uh, locally or on the national level just has to take a big cup of courage and do the right thing and um and i think that's it that's all all there is so what would you see as the key issues in the district or for you and, and let's limit it right now to the primary what, what what do you think folks are most concerned about in you you know at the end of the day, um, the incumbent and the party look at national issues. But I would say the biggest thing right now is the economy. And it was before the pandemic, yeah. but it's even worse after. Um, here in Western North Carolina, we can't sustain solely on tourism. Um, we need to be building and manufacturing and sourcing materials in the U.S. And we have the skills. We have tons of people with the skill sets and the trades to do those things. Um, and so it needs to be brought to Western North Carolina. Um, there should be incentives for that and for certain trades to try to, to stimulate our economy that way. Um, and with that comes, uh, you know, housing, there's a housing gap, uh, and there's a healthcare gap. And I think it's hard for some folks who have never had to experience living paycheck to paycheck. But I would say 
whether you're Republican or Democrat. Uh, or unaffiliated. Or unaffiliated. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, here in rural Western North Carolina, I think people can relate to that that uh, gap in, in being able to go from uh, paycheck to paycheck to having money sitting in their savings account. Um, you know, and it's a it's a choice between eating and paying for a doctor visit or showing up to work sick, you know. So that's, um, those are real life everyday problems. And I think one of the ways that we can move to, to standing in that gap and filling in that gap is gonna be expanding Medicare, um, you know, the age and um, dental. Dental is a part of your health. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, really working with state and local governments too, as far as trying to expand Medicaid. And I know that that's, you know, something that is a big topic in North Carolina. Right. Um, and so we, you know, we really, it's it's tough because the people that can afford uh, health care insurance and the people who qualify for Medicaid or or Medicare, there are a whole lot of people in the middle that don't can't do either right. that don't fall into either of those categories. So that's a huge one. And when you're healthy, you know that leads next to happiness, right? To to bigger and better things and how you can be involved. It's it's hard to be involved in. Um, in your community and in Western North Carolina as a whole and looking at the big picture when the, the your immediate picture is, is, you know, tough. Right. So. so speaking of money, that's <laughs> an important aspect of trying to get the message out. We know Mr. Cawthorn is a prodigious fundraiser and a prodigious fundraiser spender. Um, you and I think probably all of the other Republican candidates in the primary are behind in spending is is there a strategy to try and close the gap to try and overcome it there there is i i'm going to tell you now from day one i knew i was not going to take in three or four million dollars that i yeah. honestly think that i could find a lot better use in western <laughs> north carolina for three or four million yeah uh including the flood victims and you know um p kids who aren't getting three meals a day i mean they're just I think it's absurd that our politics have gotten to a point where only wealthy people can run for office. Uh, right. That wasn't what our founders intended. Yeah. Um, it intended uh, for everyday people that really know what an everyday person in their district goes through to be that voice. And um, and so we have to really send somebody to Congress who, who can do that. Um, so, no, I, I didn't plan on uh, raising or spending that much from the get-go. Um, my goal is to raise enough to cover the ads and the, you know, the yard signs and, mm -hmm. and whatnot that has to go into it those last few months. Um, but it's really just meeting people where they are. Um, I don't want to buy a vote. And I think that's what a lot of other people do. And that's just not what I'm going to do. So, Well, people who want to learn more about you and about your campaign, they can follow you on Twitter at Wendy for WNC, right? Yes, sir. And your website's wendynavarez.com, so they can certainly go there. And I suspect there's a donate button somewhere on there. If, yes, sir, <laughs> there is. You would encourage folks to look closely at it, yeah. But, uh, Wendy, thank you so much for actually being the very first candidate that I've had a chance to interview for this podcast. And 
We look forward to talking with you uh, more frequently as we progress towards the November 2022 election. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Great. And thank you for your service uh, to our country in the Navy. Oh, thank you. People all across our country and across the 14th Congressional District will celebrate Veterans Day this Thursday, November 11th. While originally designated as a federal holiday to honor and commemorate the end of World War I and the men and women who served, Veterans Day has been expanded in its scope to recognize all the men and women who have served in the armed services of this country in the wars the United States has been engaged in. The Veterans Administration has described it as a celebration to honor America's veterans for their patriotism, love of country, and willingness to serve and sacrifice for the common good. We've heard from two veterans today who are candidates for Congress in the 14th District, but I want to also recognize two other candidates who I've not had the opportunity to interview who have also served. Josh Remillard is a Democratic candidate who served in the U.S. Army from 2006 to 2014, doing two combat tours in Iraq. In addition, Jay Carey, another Democratic candidate for the 14th congressional seat, served in the U.S. Army from 1989 to 2012. We'll look forward to talking with them soon and letting them tell you about their military experiences and their campaigns. We salute all who served in the military and who now are putting themselves forward as candidates for public office. Hopefully they, and all candidates, will embrace the admonition to willingly serve and sacrifice for the common good. Part of this podcast series includes our On the Road Again segment. And if I had Willie Nelson's permission, I'd have our producer ease in a little chorus of Willie's hit, On the Road Again. But for now, you can just hum along at home. Today, we jump into my old 2004 Toyota Tundra pickup truck, dubbed Or Force One from an earlier campaign, and head down the road to Henderson County where I grew up. Just west of the county seat of Hendersonville is the Big Willis section. There on the rolling hills sits a small churchyard, the Beulah Baptist Church Cemetery. It's here that my great-grandfather, Robert Franklin Orr, is laid to rest next to his wife, Mary Middleton Orr. There are two tombstones, one to he and his wife. On it is an inscription which says in part, A plain man, true to his country, church, and family. Next to this tombstone is a smaller one that says, Robert F. Orr, Company F, 2nd North Carolina Mounted Infantry. It's not surprising to see markers recognizing military service from the Civil War era here in North Carolina. What is remarkable about this is the story behind it. Robert Franklin Orr, like many in the mountains of western North Carolina, was a farmer with no inclination to go to war for the Confederacy and the large slave-holding states of the South. But the Confederate government began conscripting men in 1863 as the war dragged on, and my great-grandfather and others in the mountains soon found themselves being forced to fight for the Confederacy. Resistance to this conscription 
ultimately forced my great-grandfather and others to refuse service in the Confederate Army. A meeting was ultimately held near the Transylvania County line, not far from this cemetery, where more than 100 men of military age made plans to march over the Great Smoky Mountains into East Tennessee and enlist in the Union Army. Robert Franklin Orr was one of those men, and upon arriving in Knoxville, Tennessee, Company F of the 2nd North Carolina Mounted Infantry, United States Army, was organized. This unit was one of only a handful of North Carolina units which fought for the Union. His wife, Mary Middleton Orr, wrote her own story years later about walking with her one child and her mother and nine other children from western North Carolina through Confederate lines into East Tennessee towards the end of the war. She quoted her husband as saying before he left, I have been driven from my home and intend to fight my way back. He did, and upon returning after the Civil War to the Big Willis section, came back a Lincoln Republican. The bitterness and recriminations from the divided loyalties of the mountains of western North Carolina drove the politics of the region well into the 20th century. Democrats who had gained absolute control of the state after Reconstruction and the white supremacy campaign of 1900 did all they could to eradicate the influence of Republicans in the state, particularly those in the mountain counties that had fought for the Union. The politics of over a century was driven not so much by issues or policies, but whether you or a family member had fought for the Confederacy or the Union. Divisions were so defined that in Henderson County, when I was growing up, there was a Democratic funeral home and a Republican funeral home. My mother, who was a lifelong Democrat, you couldn't teach in the public schools if you weren't a Democrat, beseeched me as she reached her 90s, don't let that Republican funeral home bury me, Bob. And my ninth grade English teacher, Lucille Allen, a strong Democrat, got mad at me one day and pointedly said, Bob Orr, you're a scalawag just like the rest of your family. She knew which students came from Republican families, and of course, a scalawag was the Southerner who had supported the Union. So, on this Veterans Day, I salute all who have served in the countless wars and conflicts that America has been engaged in since its founding. Western North Carolina has proudly furnished more than its share of men and women to our armed forces and continues to do so. And those men and women have returned home to continue that service to their country, state, and communities. Please join us next week when we continue our candidate interviews with two Democratic challengers. And don't forget to go to our relabeled website, www.thebattle4nc14.com, for all the information you need to keep up with the most interesting congressional race in America. Thanks for listening, and please send us your comments and suggestions. And a final special thanks to our veterans listening. This podcast has been produced by Mark Maximoff. I'm Bob Orr, and thanks for your interest.